0: Amen. Well, my, my wife and I recently had an irrigation line installed in our yard, uh, which is a real, a real blessing given how hot the summers uh, can be around here in Richmond. And when the whole project was done, the gentleman who installed this irrigation line, he, he kind of gave me a tour. He walked me through the whole system, oriented me, and, and toward the end of this, he said, by the way... If anything ever goes wrong, I thought I should really listen now. If anything ever goes wrong and water is spraying all over the place, just pouring out like a fire hydrant from some place that doesn't look like it should be, there's a, there's a little valve here inside this hole that you can flip and cut the water off. The water pressure is pretty high in your neighborhood, sir and sometimes it blows out the fittings. Well, that didn't sound like an ideal scenario. <laughs> so I asked him, how often does that happen? And he said, oh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. And my, my neighbors had his water meter blow out a couple times, water just gushing all over the place. <laughs> And, you know, I I heard him say that, and I thought, that you didn't say what I wanted you to say. You didn't. I wanted you to say, don't worry, that will never happen. Why not? Because I'm paying for that fire hydrant of water that's gushing all over the place. But he didn't say that. He was honest with me. He basically said, listen, I've designed this whole system to keep that from happening. But if it does happen, and cutting off the first valve doesn't stop it, I've I've installed a second valve over in this hole that you can cut off. And if the second valve fails, sir, there's a third valve on the meter itself and you could cut that off too. Well, that was comforting for me. That was comforting for me, why? why because he had made provision for even the worst possible water scenario right so he didn't want it to happen the the whole system had been designed very intentionally and carefully and deliberately so that it wouldn't happen but if it did happen there was a provision in place that, that the more he explained it the more i thought oh that is entirely adequate i don't i don't need to worry it's okay well, I think there are a lot of parallels between that situation and what we just read in 1 John 2. I do. Because in verse 1, if you look there with me, church, John identifies a scenario that he wants to avoid at all costs. Look at verse 1. My little children, hear the affection John is a pastor. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Church, I have a godly fear for us. And that's this. I fear that too often we get comfortable with sin. Okay? We get comfortable with doing what God has forbidden and failing to do what God has required. So much so that we forget that sin is our mortal enemy. It's a mortal enemy. We're like a soldier that, that has spent so many years in prison that captivity feels normal. We're just used to it. You know, sin is, is all around us, right? It's, it's all over the internet, it's, it's all over the news, it's all over the, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, the, the people we work with, the people we live with. Yeah, some of you are probably nodding your heads, oh yeah, trust me. But, but we're still, it's, it's in all of our hearts, and no matter how mature you are in the faith, the, the desires of the flesh never go away. And in that sense, sin feels so normal. It feels so normal. But, but that is part of the lie. That's part of the lie. That's part of the deception. It is not the way life was meant to be. God didn't create the world with sin. He, he created The world, he created us, pure and holy and righteous. Genesis 1, 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. It was very good. You know, we we forget that. We're like, if you've read C.S. Lewis's A Fictional Space Trilogy, there's a character named Dr. Ransom, and, and Dr. Ransom is transported in the second book To another world that has yet to be corrupted by sin. And the first person he meets there is barely recognizable as a human being. Why? Because life in this world is all that Dr. Ransom has ever known. It's all that that we've ever known. A life where even followers of Christ are forced to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.21, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's reminding us here, church, that the sin that feels so normal to you and me will destroy your soul. Why? Because you can't sin in a moral universe governed by a holy and righteous God and get away with it. God will hold you accountable for every word, every thought, every action that does not conform to the perfection of his character. Okay, nothing will be ignored. Nothing will be overlooked. Nothing will be swept under the rug because it's common or human or Normal. The Lord is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. And and the wages of sin is death. So what's going to keep us from believing, from being deceived into believing, that because evil lies close at hand, that it's not really evil? Well, Well, the Lord's made a provision for us, friends. He's made a provision designed to stop the worst possible scenario from happening. It's called the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So look back at verse 1, chapter 2. What does John say? Little children, I am what? I'm writing. Notice that. I'm writing, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And it's here that we discover the first point that John's making in these verses, okay? Point number one, here it is. It's the word of God that helps us run from sin. The word of God helps us run from sin. Listen to Psalm 119, verse one. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules." I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Friend, I wonder, is that a regular prayer in your life? Blessed are you, O Lord. So teach me your statutes. Teach me your word. How do we, think about it, how do we avoid a life of shame? How do we avoid the unbearable horror of being forsaken by the living God? Well, We do it by living a life that is governed by the word of God. Why? Why? Because it's the word of God that helps us run from sin. Right? It's God's word that does that. The, the word of God screams on practically every page, look out. Look out. Do, do, you, do you see that desire? Do you see that thought? Do you see that, that action or inaction? That will kill you. That's what God's word does for us. So, so stop. Stop right now, the word of God says, before it's too late. Don't go there. Don't sin. Proverbs 9, verse 6. Leave your simple ways and live. Over and over again, the word of God does that for us. Every page. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. These are not dead words on a page. These are God's words. They're God's words. and, And he's graciously given them to you to keep you on the path of life and deliver your soul from death. My little children, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But I hope you realize that that effect isn't automatic. It's not as though simply because the word of God is here and it screams on every page, don't sin, don't go there, that will kill you. That that somehow that effect is automatically produced in our life. That, that's not the way it works. Just because the power to do that is in the Word doesn't mean that that power is operating in your life. That doesn't happen because you have a, a Bible app on your phone. You know, what that it did it well, do? I've got this app on my phone, and it's in my pocket, and it's amazing when I'm supposed to do, about to do something I shouldn't do. You know? No, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. You know, the fact that you may have 18 Bibles in your house doesn't guarantee that warning effect is happening in your life. How does that happen? Well, it happens when day after day, month after month, year after year, you devote yourself to reading and studying and meditating and memorizing this word until your heart and your mind are saturated by it. Becomes part of who you are. And I'll warn you, particularly those of you who are younger, okay? No athletic skill, no intellectual ability, no physical achievement is more precious or more valuable or more important than having your mind saturated with the word of God. It's not. That is of great value great value so, so store up his word in your heart friend that you might not sin against the lord and take care take care church that that your most regular prayer is not lord make my life easy and comfortable but lord teach me your statutes that's the kind of people we want to be the word of god helps us run from sin but praise God, John doesn't stop there. Why? Because we don't listen. I don't listen. Right? You know, what, what do we do? We know what the word of God says. Don't do that. That action, don't, or that inaction, don't do that. That will kill you. I think I'll do it. We sin, right? And sometimes we, we, we've been around church, around Christianity long enough that we know that if we open this word, it would warn us away from sin. It would send us running from sin. And so what do we do? We don't even open it. Why not? Because there's something inside of us that, that knows that if I open it and I read these words, that I'm going to get convicted. and I'm going to have to stop doing things that I really, really want to do. We sin. So what do we do when when that happens? What do we do if, as it were, the first valve doesn't work, doesn't stop us? Because we really don't want it to shut the water off. We want to sin. Where do we go when we realize we've done that, we've sinned. Well, here's the second point, okay? The word of God helps us run from sin. Point number two, when we sin, Jesus wants us to run to him, okay? We've got to keep these together, church. The word of God helps us to run from sin, run from sin, but when we sin, Jesus wants us to run to him, We've got to hold those two things together, okay? Think of it this way. To whatever degree you experience the conviction of sin, know that to an infinitely greater degree, the Lord Jesus has made a provision for your sin. So look, look at 1 John verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. What does he say? But if anyone does sin, that, there is so much grace in that church. So much grace. God knows. If anyone does sin, we have what? We have an advocate. All right, let's camp out here a little bit. An advocate, what's an advocate? An advocate is someone who pleads on behalf of one person for another person. So so they make your cause their cause. Okay, they make... Your needs, their concern, they are for you, not against you. And they're using their abilities and their wisdom and their knowledge to look out for your greatest good. So so examples, think of a defense law, you're in a courtroom, pleading your case before a judge. Think of a, a lobbyist looking out for your interest on, on Capitol Hill, or, or think of a parent who's who's standing up somewhere for the, the welfare of their child. You know, we live in a world that's, that's full of all kinds of different advocates. But, but there are a couple things that John tells us about this specific kind of advocate that we have if and when we sin. Okay, so let's look at these. First, what does John say? We have an advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. What do we need to know about the advocate, John? We have an advocate who is with the Father. He's with the Father. What does that tell us? He's not pleading your cause in Washington. He's not arguing your case before the Supreme Court. He's not sitting at the UN Security Council trying to get something done. He is advocating on your behalf with God himself. That's what John's saying. And remember, church, that, that no one's posture toward you is more important than the Father's. No one's. No one's influence in your life is is more determinative than the Father's. He created all things. He knows all things. He rules all things. What he says goes. No one is more powerful than the Father. And it's with him before the Father himself that our advocate is pleading. It's the first thing we need to know. Okay, second, who, who is this advocate? He's He's an advocate. He's with the Father. He's pleading with the Father. But who is he? Well, he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the fact that our advocate is Jesus means what? It means he's a man like us. He's tempted in every way. He, he knows us. He, he lived among us. He walked with us, which, which means he's eminently qualified. To represent you. Because he gets you. You know, you you ever talk to a friend and the more you shared your struggles, your concerns, your challenges, the more you just felt like, dude, I know you mean well, but you just don't get it. You just don't understand. You haven't walked in my shoes. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. You just, you haven't. Do you realize you can never say that about Jesus? He's a man. He walked in your shoes. He he was what? Tempted in every way. That means there is never a sorrow, a trouble, or a temptation that you're ever going to come crashing into. And Jesus says, never face that. Good luck. No, that's not the case at all. The fact that he's, our advocate is Jesus reminds us that he's eminently qualified to represent us. But, but he's not just a man either, right? He's not just Jesus. He's the Christ. Jesus Christ. What does what the fact that he's Christ tell us? It means that, that he's the Messiah. That he's one with the Father of the same substance of the Father, fully divine as the eternally begotten Son of God, the one that the Father promised to send long ago to rescue us from sin. So calling him Jesus reminds us that our advocate is qualified to represent us. Calling him the Christ reminds us that our advocate is fully able to save us. Why? Because he's God himself. He's God himself. He's the Christ. And as such, he's righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And and look at what John says. Think about that. The fact that he's righteous means that our advocate is by his own merit what you and I are not. He has been and always will be In perfect conformity to the law of God, the will of God, the character of God, because he is God. That's what the fact that he's righteous means. As the son, he only advocates for what is in keeping with the will of his father. He doesn't ask his father to bend the rules. He doesn't ask him to make exceptions. His cause is righteous because Jesus is righteous. But by his very nature, he is incapable of pleading for a cause that is not righteous. Feel that. And you know what that means about your advocate? Well, unlike the best lawyer in this country, he doesn't win some and lose some. He always wins he always wins why because he never advocates for anything that is not already prior to his advocacy in perfect conformity with the character of god and the will of god he's righteous he's with the father he's jesus christ the righteous what's the third thing we need to see about this advocate look at verse two he is the propitiation for our sins that is not a word we use very often it's not, but, but it's a really important word because it's the heart of the gospel. So, so to propitiate someone means what? It means to appease, pacify, or avert their anger. So it's a relational word, it's a personal word, and in, in the context of verse two, the one being propitiated is none less than the Father himself. Now here's the big question, why does the Father need to be propitiated? We well, may not expect me to say this, but I would argue that the reason is that he's exceedingly good. He's exceedingly good. And as such, as John Stott writes, the Father is characterized by steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Okay, that's what the Bible means when it speaks of the wrath of God. You know, we don't think that way. You know, we tend to think of wrath, anger as, as something that's capricious or or arbitrary, or spiteful, or or malicious, or irrational. That is not what the anger of God is like. It's exceedingly predictable and good. I mean, think about that. What, what is anger at its root? It's an emotion and attitude that says, I'm against that. Right? Do you realize in pure form That is a necessary consequence of being a righteous person, a righteous God. There are things that, that, if we're righteous, we must be against. You know, when children die from a chemical weapons attack, we should be angry. We should be angry. And something's wrong if we're not. Something's wrong. So think of it this way. The goodness and justice of God ensures and requires righteous anger whenever he encounters moral evil in any form. It requires that, which is exactly what our sin is. Right? It's, it's an act of treason. It's, it's an injury to the majesty of God. And as such, God is right to be angry. Friend, if, if treason and wickedness, which is what our sin is, could go down in the universe and God would be apathetic toward that, do you know what he would cease to be? Good. He would cease to be good. The anger of God The wrath of God is grounded in the moral goodness of God. And as George Smeaton reminds us, God's wrath includes his aversion to sin, his displeasure at the sinner, and the will and purpose to avenge it. So propitiation is necessary because our sin arouses the holy wrath of God. Okay, that's why it's necessary. So, so how is the father propitiated? How is his wrath on your account because of your sin turned away from you? Well, that happens through your advocate. Okay, Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens translation he is everything we are not everything we ought to be and he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself Church, Jesus' experience of the wrath of God when he died was neither imaginary nor symbolic. It was real. Okay, when he prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Do you know what he was praying about? He was praying about the cup of the wrath of God. Psalm 75.8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So when John says he is the propitiation for our sins, what is he saying? He's saying that on the cross, Jesus Christ drank the cup of the Father's wrath against all your sins to the last drop. And don't think for a moment that somehow the father is the bad cop. And Jesus reluctantly convinces him to, to fly off the handle at him instead of you. Okay? Jesus wasn't reluctant to die for you. Nor did he convince a reluctant father to forgive you. Why, why do we know that's not the case? Because when Jesus died, God Died. This is what's just so amazing about the gospel. That God would say, my wrath must be poured out because I am good and just. And then God would say, I will devise a way for me to bear that wrath. That's amazing. He gave himself for you because he loves you, church. He loves you. As John Stott says, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. Then what did he do? He rose from the grave and and even now he's he's interceding for you. He's pleading the merit of his atoning blood for you. He's the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What what is John getting at with that? Well, he's reminding us that that all God requires of of every man, every woman in all times and places is the same. That we trust Jesus, that we turn from our sins and, and place all our hope on the work that he accomplished on our behalf okay by the way that is the definition of saving faith okay what is faith not saving faith is not a generic belief that God exists it's not or that God loves you or that God has a wonderful plan for your life he does But that's not what saving faith is, okay? Saving faith is a personal confidence that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins and that he died so you wouldn't have to die. Okay, that's what saving faith is. God's given us his word to teach us to run from sin and when we sin, what does God want us to do? He wants us to run to him. Now, why would we run to God instead of away from God when we sin? I mean, that's just first glance, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we do that? Because we have an advocate with the Father. Okay, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who in this very moment is pleading the eternal virtue of his vicarious sacrifice on your behalf for your sins. So what does that mean, Christian? Well, here's what it means, okay? In every situation, in every circumstance, no matter how far you go in sinning against your God. You know what is always the case? God is for you. He's not against you. Think about that. You can know Because Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins. He appeases, he pacifies the wrath of the Father. That in every situation from now till the day you die, your God is for you. He's not against you. That's amazing. He will lovingly discipline you because of your sin. But he's not angry with you. It's hard for some of you to believe But the response we must take when it's hard is not to think about how sorry we are that we must repent of our sins, but to think about how exceedingly righteous the advocate is. When you sin, don't run and hide. Run to Jesus. Okay, fix your trembling eyes on the Savior and find in his death the confidence that you need to pour out your troubled soul, your sinful heart, to the Father who welcomes you with open arms. Today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life. No eternal security is greater or more valuable than knowing that the God of the universe, because of Jesus, is always for you. That's incredible, okay? You cannot buy that with an insurance policy. But that is the most valuable security, the greatest comfort, the the surest consolation that we could ever know, that God is for us. Okay, the word of God helps us run from sin, but when we sin, we don't want to run away from God. We want to run to Jesus. Okay, that's point number two. Now look at verse three. Look at verse three. Here's where John gets really blunt and and very practical. So how can we know that Jesus is our Savior? How can you know that he's the propitiation for your sins and not just other people's sins? Okay, in other words, how can you know that you're a Christian and not just someone who shows up in church on Sundays? Those aren't the same thing. Okay, verse 3, how can you know that? And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, point number three. If you know Jesus, you'll obey Jesus. Right, so get the connection. The word of God helps us run from sin. When we sin, Jesus tells us to run to him. And if you know Jesus, you'll obey Jesus. I wonder if anyone's ever come up to you and ask, do you know Jesus? Maybe somebody's done that, or or you've asked that question, or wanted to ask that question. I, I think many Americans in our part of the country would would probably answer that question with, with something like this. Well, do I know Jesus? Um, well, I know he's the founder of Christianity. Um, and I know he, wasn't he like a dead white guy or something? And um, he taught people how to love each other. He did some good things. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I know Jesus. I mean, I have no reason to not like him, assuming he's a real person. Well, here's the problem with that response. It doesn't answer the question. What's the question? It's not, do you know about Jesus? Right? It's not, do you know facts about Jesus? It's not a trivial pursuit question. It's a relationship question. Right? John's talking about whether we have a personal relationship. Where we know him and, and delight in him and trust in him as a result of that relationship. And friend, it's that personal relationship that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the entire world. Okay, so think about this. What does is, what is Islam hold out? A God who is distant and removed. Okay, what does what Buddhism hold out? A state of enlightenment. Okay, what, what is Judaism? It's orthodox expression. What's still waiting for God to dwell with us? Right? Only Christianity proclaims this stunning reality that you and I can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. That's crazy. Jeremiah 31. And here in these words that Jesus didn't twist the father's arm. The Father has been planning this from the beginning. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my subjects, who I rule with an iron fist. No, they shall be my people. My people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, you ought to know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How's that going to go down? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Know that the the ultimate goal of the gospel is not mere forgiveness. Okay, the ultimate goal of the gospel is not mere forgiveness. Personal holiness. You know what the ultimate goal of the gospel is? It's relationship. It's reconciled relationship with God. It's why our vision as a church is to help one another enjoy a growing relationship with God. That's the goal. That's what John's getting at when he says... By this we have come to know him. That's what's embedded in the know. It's relational. It's, it's personal. When we trust Jesus as our savior, there's an intimacy, a closeness, a, a spiritual union and fellowship that we receive with the Father as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that helps us know the Son of God by helping us understand the word of God. And church, that sort of what I'll call spirit-empowered, word-centered, faith-fueled, saving knowledge of Jesus, if it's genuine, that will always manifest itself in the form of something specific. What's that? Obedience. Obedience. It's called, what does John say? Keeping his commandments. Why is that the case? Because when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just save us from something, he saves us for something. Romans 6 verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, think the word, and having been set free from sin, game over. No, You've become slaves of righteousness. Feel the weight of that. John just comes back to this, this principle over and over again in 1 John. Okay, Saving faith in Jesus will always manifest, manifest itself in the form of personal obedience to Jesus. You can't separate those things. Saving faith in him always responds in obedience to him. The faith that saves is the faith that sanctifies which is why one of the three big tests in First John for whether or not you can be assured of salvation, am I a Christian, is this. It's a moral test. Do you obey God? Do you obey God? Does the pattern of your life reveal a pattern of you doing what you want to do? What other people say you can do? Or what God says you should do? That's the question. And if you say, well, I know him. But you don't obey him, you're lying. You're lying. Because if you did know him, you would obey him. Now, let me conclude with this. Why is that the case? Think, think carefully about that. Why is it the case that to know Jesus is to obey Jesus? Well, John gives us two reasons here, okay? Look at verse 5 and 6. Two reasons. I'll give them to you up front. Why is it that to know Jesus is to obey Jesus? Two reasons. Reason number one, the nature of love. Reason number two, the nature of union with Christ. Okay? Each of these are, these are really big themes that show up over and over again in the Bible. So, so first, first, why is it that to know Jesus is to obey Jesus? Well, the first reason that's true Has everything to do with the nature of love. So look at verse five. Whoever keeps Jesus' word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So think about that. When you love someone, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, to truly love someone is is to seek the highest and greatest good of the object of your love. Right? That's what love is. So what is God's highest and greatest good? It's his glory. God's supreme and ultimate commitment is to the fame of his name in all the earth. That's what all of redemptive history, all that God is doing in space and time, is moving toward what the gospel is designed to achieve. The fame of God's name in all the earth. So how's that going to go down? How's that going to happen? How do we show God that we love him, that we're committed to what he's committed to? That, that his greatest good is our greatest good. What, what, what is it that we can do that holds forth the fame of his name for all to see? It's very simple. We obey his commands. We obey his commands. G- Jesus just beats this like a drum over and over again. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep his word. I mean, Jesus just couldn't be more clear. We don't get to decide. Hear this. We don't get to decide how we want to love God. He's not a lonely old chap looking for whatever emotional handout we feel like giving him. You know, he's not on the side of the road looking for love (laughs) he's not he made you to love him and he tells you how to love him the high point the apex the the perfection of love for God is obeying his word And, and I really want some of you who feel like obeying is so hard which by the way that's just reality so if you feel that good for you the rest of us are deluded if you feel that obeying God is hard, that it's not glamorous, you need to remember that. OK? You're, you're never just doing what's right. When you are obeying God, when it is so hard and so not glamorous, and nobody's watching and kids are screaming and you just want to yell in a pillow. Ah!" And you fight for self-control. And you say, "Jesus!" Help me right now. I so want to sin. And you don't because he helps you. Do you know what you were doing? You weren't just avoiding sin. You weren't just doing what's right, though you were. You were loving God. We need to remember that. The most costly forms of obedience are the most precious demonstrations of love for God. You know, think of what David said in 2 Samuel 24. Verse 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Why did he say that? Because he knew that that God was worthy of all that he was and all that he had and infinitely more. So to love God is to obey God. So follow the connection here, okay? If you know God, you'll love God. And if you love God, you'll obey God. Okay, that's why if we know him, We'll obey him. The nature of love. That was the first reason. Here's the second. Very quickly. The nature of union with Christ. Look at verse 6. By this we know that we, what? By this we know, it's end of verse 5 actually, that we know him? No. By this we know that we are in him. That's not what John said back in verse 3. What's up with the difference? He's deliberately paralleling knowing God and being in God because the only way we can ever come to know Jesus is to be united with Jesus. You can't separate that. Christian, union with Christ is the divine means through which you are saved, he becomes your propitiation, and the divine means through which you come to know him. We, We never know Jesus from afar. He's not a pen pal. You're united with him if you're a Christian. That's that's what the Holy Spirit does. He unites you to Christ. and, And that union with Christ is the means by which all the blessings that your advocate has earned come your way. Which is why being in Christ is how the Bible describes a Christian. So if you're in Christ, Jesus' life becomes your life. Jesus' will becomes your will. Jesus' mission becomes your mission. That's what the Bible means when it talks about abiding in Christ. All that he is progressively becomes all that you are. Which means learning to walk in the same way that he walked. So think of it this way. Being a Christian requires a lot more than going around and saying, what would Jesus do? But it's never less than that. It requires a lot more than that. But it's never less than that. Why? Because to know Jesus is to obey him. Friends, where does all this leave us? Maybe you're thinking, what what do all those points have in common? Is there there a big idea here that they build? Well, I think there is. And in many sermons, I give that to you up front. Today, I wanted to give that to you at the end. Okay? Let's review. The word of God helps us run from sin. When we sin, Jesus says to run to him. And if we know Jesus, we'll obey Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Think of it this way. Assurance of salvation is the reward of gospel-centered obedience. Okay, every one of those words matters. Okay, why, why do I say That obedience has to be gospel-centered. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that obedience, this obedience we're talking about is never trying to earn favor from God through obedience to God. Okay, it's always, always an obedience that responds to the favor that is ours because of our advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So so assurance of salvation isn't just the reward of any old obedience. It's the reward of gospel-centered obedience where we're obeying Jesus in response to the surety of his love and in response to the confidence we have in the favor of the Father. That's where John challenges us, church. Assurance of salvation is the reward of gospel-centered obedience. He does that through the word. He does that through the gospel. And it leaves us with a greater confidence if we're willing to obey that we are children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've touched on themes this morning that you're going to bring us back to over and over again. But I pray that the one thing that would stick in our minds today, the one expression of this assurance of salvation that you so want us to have and are building on us through the words of First John, Lord, the one thing, one expression would be knowing that in Christ, if you're our Savior, that Father, you are for us, not against us. But I pray that that truth, that promise, and more importantly, the grounds for that would wash over these brothers and sisters like a cleansing flood and fill them with new faith for this week that no matter what goes down, they've got an advocate who is interceding for them. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.